I want to welcome Dr. D. Michelle. Hello. Uh, who uh, is, uh, well, she'll tell you a little bit more about herself, and she's actually my partner, so we need to declare that to start with. She didn't have to travel very far to get here, did she? No, <laughs> I was working from home today, so that worked out really, really well. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's great. And so we just wanted to have a chat about, uh, a chat about uh, foster care, which is a conversation that we were having with the group. Um, and we hope that you do log in, look into that and actually have a look at that video as well. It was, a, it was a fabulous discussion. It's a shame that it didn't turn out the way we wanted to when we did the feed, um, but it was a fabulous discussion uh, with some great ideas. And those, that group of people will be back next, next Tuesday and we'll do the same thing again, but on a different topic. So, Dee, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your book. Yes, right. So I wanted to um, to talk about a book that I've written with a colleague in um, in Victoria at the Australian Catholic University. So I work at the University of Adelaide. Neil Musgrove works at the Australian Catholic University, and we did a, a project from two thousand from two thousand and thirteen to two thousand and fifteen, talking with people who've been in foster care, talking with foster carers. Um, looking at the archives, doing some historical work, and we've produced a book um, which has just been released called The Slow Evolution of Foster Care in Australia, uh, just like a family question mark. The book has just come out. Um, I recommend that you perhaps go to your local library and request a copy. It, it is very expensive because it is a hardback scholarly book. It'll be coming out in paperback at some point and then it'll be much cheaper. But in the meantime, you could get it from Booktopia. Um, Amazon have Afterpay. You can also get it for your Kindle, which is a little bit cheaper. But as I said, if it's too expensive, by all means, go along to your local libraries and, and request that they buy a copy. It's a significant book because there have been books on foster care in Australia before, but this is the first national history of foster care in Australia, so we're really proud of our efforts for that. One of the things that we do comment on in the introduction is that the voices of people who have lost their children to the States, have their, ch their children removed, are, are present in the book, but not as strong of a presence as we would have liked. And so, Tony, I was really happy to listen to that conversation last night because you did have parents who were, um, who do have children in state care, and I, they are a group who are very, um, they are in research, but compared to other groups, you know, not as much. So they, they don't get listened to um, as much, and often they're monsterised, if you know what I mean, seen as monsters rather than seen as people who've often had some quite horrific experiences themselves that they've not yet been able to do. Did you interview people like, like those that I had here? No, 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 we didn't. We do have some archival research, but not people who've been... People who've been in foster care, yes, but not then people who lost. So is that an area of research, perhaps, that no one's really delved into? That works no, between two for, for, you know, kid, parents whose kids have been removed? Yeah, there has been some research, um, and it, I think it's a growing area, as support is growing more for people who've been... Um, who've you know, you've lost their own children for the state. And there are some groups in Child Protection Party is, is strong here in South Australia and growing in other states. There are some organisations like Finn, for example, in Victoria and Western Australia who do represent parents. So, it's, so the presence is there. It's, um, and there's a growing number of activists as well, um, Aboriginal women in New South Wales who've gotten together, uh, grandmas, 
against removals of children, they're called, and, and that's fantastic because they're speaking back to the system as well. And I think what's needed is more and more people speaking back to the system. So what are your key findings in the book? Well, some of the key findings are that things haven't improved yeah. for 150 years. So Was that a surprise? Was that a yes and no. Yes and no. I think one of the things from that came from that conversation with um, uh, with the parents that you had on that video. I listened to that, and I thought one of the things that was interesting that they talked about was the idea. They didn't call it double standards, but that's what I'm calling it. They're calling it double standards, where they're, they're, where the parents are held to a different standard to foster care. And so one of the things that we do know historically and before we started the project was that children in state care, whether they were in residential care or in, out of, or in foster care, were often subject to abuse. And one of the reasons why we wanted to do the project is that there are lots and lots of inquiries, but the focus has been mostly on residential care. So we, we already knew that the state, as a parent, as a capital P corporate parent, um, is not very good. They're actually not very good at their job, and we know that through the uh, Bringing Them Home report, through the Forgotten Australians report, through forced adoptions, and now, of course, through the recent Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. So they haven't. So I guess we knew all of that, yeah. um, but we wanted to explore s specifically around people's experience of foster care, because lots of the con conversation is dominated by residential care and I don't want to say that it shouldn't be, um, those voices absolutely should be, hear, uh, should be heard but we do want to hear from foster care because if kids are in foster care they're often very hidden and they're often isolated and separated from each other. Um, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. if, there is, if there is one good thing about residential care or living in an orphanage and, I'm not, and it might be the only good thing is that you know you're, you're not the only kid who's there, you know, you know that there are others around you. Um, but if you're in foster care, you might not have any idea that you're the only um, foster kid. Yeah. So when, when you say the slow evolution, which of those two words is the most important? That the it's evolving or that it's slow? Yeah, well, one of the things <coughs> that happened in, term, in terms of that evolution, one of the things that has happened now is actually the rise in kinship care. So where in the 1990s you would have had in South Australia, at least 90% of children in foster care, that's now not the case. Um, we now have almost as many children in kinship care as in oh, foster right. care. Right. So very in South Australia, um, when we did the book anyway, the figures then were about 11% in residential care and then kind of evenly split then between foster care and kinship care. I have some issues with kinship care. Clearly there's some benefits, you're with family, um, so that can be some benefits, but, and, and about 41% of kinship carers are grandparents. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that in many ways, kinship carers don't get as much support as foster carers in terms of money, and that's an issue that the Nyland Report has raised. Um, but one of the things that niggles away at me with grandparents taking on children is if they were abusive, terrible parents themselves, and then that's led to children who were struggling with um, substance abuse and other difficulties in their own life because of the way that they were raised. And then the grandchildren go back to those grandparents 
Now, they might have changed their ways, and I, I do know the story. And we often hear stories where grandparents, are better grandparents. I mean, people tell you that they're better yeah, grandparents. Yeah, as I would be, you know, because yeah. you learn from all of that, those experiences and mistakes and regret your upset. So they might be much better, but what sort of insult is that for those children mm. who mm. were treated very badly? Uh, and it might, it might be better in many ways because you can stay more and negotiate contact, perhaps, but I still think it might be a little bit like, you know, Acid but there's also the there's also a lot of conflicts, I think, between the parent and the and their parents. You know, the parent and the yes, yes. And that often when those parents have and sometimes the department tends to want to separate the the grandparents from the parent as well. You know, they can't have access when they're supposed to have yes. access. You don't have that normal parent uh, grandparent child mm. type relationship mm. either. And I'm not sure it's saying that's the total this total sum, but it is something that bothers me a little bit about that. So that's one of the changes is now the big decline from the 1970s in residential mm. care, mm. then the increase in foster care, but now the rise of kinship care is, is one of the significant changes. And there'll be some sort of um, sociocultural reasons for that. So in the 1950s, uh, for example, people like my foster mum didn't do anything else, she didn't go out to work, and many women didn't go out to work, and the, the expectation, many women did, there were working class women who went out to work, and um, she had a friend who worked, and there was a woman across the road who did, did paid work, but she did not this, she chose to, to do foster care instead. But these days, um, many women, of course, have their own jobs and own, yeah. own careers, so there's less availability, I suppose, in terms of women of and it was mostly women who did the foster care work, although there's always been a diversity in foster care. Yeah. Foster care so what so why why do you think there hasn't been the development that there that one would expect through a social issue such as looking after kids, making kids safe, all that sort of stuff. And and particularly foster care, uh, or someone else caring for these kids if parents aren't able to care for them. So what what kind of gets in the way do you think of significant progress being made in that area? Well, there's probably a number of things. One is, as I said, children in foster care are kind of invisible. They are tucked away in, in homes and people can't see them. So that's one concern. Um, the other concern, of course, is that pressing issue of children's voices not being heard. And I know the new legislation has come through and now that's a requirement um, for children to, to be heard about their preferences. But in the past, that wasn't the case. And so if children ran away from foster care placements, then up until the 1970s they were arrested um, and, uh, and punished for, for running away. So, so not only were, were their voices not heard, but when they expressed dissatisfaction with where, that, with where they were say, uh, staying, then they were punished for that. So the absence of children's voices in all of this, I think, mm, is, good is point. very, very, Great point. Is yeah. very, very significant. <clears throat> and that's, that's an issue that they're trying to resolve in the current legislation, where actually they're allowing, or, or they're more aware of mm. the role of kids in having a voice as to where they would like to stay and how they feel, providing kids are the right age to be able to obviously articulate any of that. Um, so that they're kind of, I think that came out of the NIDA report as well, didn't it, the children? The requirement for that, yeah. Yeah, it seems a bit late though. <laughs> I, was, well, I don't know. I was, I was thinking, I was listening to David Letterman, who's now about 71, talking to Jay Z, who's much younger. And the, uh, what the, 
from that conversation where Jay-Z was, he didn't have a particularly good childhood, but he would talk about how different it was for him raising his, his little girl who was, about, who was about six, I think, when I was listening to this. And she had said to him, oh, Daddy, when you talk to me like that, that really hurt my feelings. And he apologised and said he wouldn't do it again. And David Letterman said, look, when I was a kid, it would have been just shut up and get in the car and get on with yeah, it. Yeah. And so community standards have changed enormously with regard to attitudes to children. And the old idea of, you know, children should be seen and not heard, which is what I grew up with, has been long gone in the wider community. So it surprises me that government agencies haven't, haven't adopted that. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's 2018 yeah. and now we're saying, hey, come on kids, you can... You can voice your opinions, and I think you would know more than me, but the Family Court has that requirement and has had for a long time as well. So, so I don't know, I think the government system seems to be lagging behind... They're certainly not proactive in setting standards, they're lagging behind community standards. So apart from uh, you know, children being heard and some of the other things you talked about, what, what do you think are the key... The key issues that would progress it. So, if in 20 years' time we write a book and it isn't titled "Slow Evolution," mm. it's titled "Rapid Evolution" in this area. Mm. What what sort of things do you need? Do you think need to happen so that we could write another book in another 20 years' time that might have a different outlook? Well, to be honest, I think um, the approach needs to go more towards strengthening families. So, there's a couple of things I'd like to see. Um, strengthening families so that children don't have to be removed necessarily. Yep. If I think back to the beginning, I know it's a long time ago, to the beginning of uh, foster care in South Australia, it seemed to me that money went immediately into administering a system rather than money going to people who had no money and there was very little in the way of welfare support. So because they were unemployed, because they were impoverished, because often they were sex workers who had children, they were punished by having their children removed mm. rather than supported and cared for. So, and I think some of those attitudes still kind of linger. And so I think we need to have a, a radical rethink about what help is needed. And clearly there will be some children who do need to be removed and sometimes that will be more temporary. So that's one thing uh, that I'd like to see. The other thing I'd like to see comes, uh, was prompted by the people talking in the video, those parents. Um, some of the best stories that I, I met some fabulous foster carers when I was doing interviews. Um, some of the best stories I heard though was where the foster carer kind of embraced the birth parents and the mm. birth family became like an extension of the foster care family. And there was one situation where a contemporary foster carer, so she's just got a little boy now, he'd be about six years of age. And she was fabulous. She said, you know, I thought that that mum was a very young mum and all she needed was support. Now, I have her son. He had already been in and out of foster care and he was traumatised badly by the time he went to stay with this woman. Um, but she said, you know, she felt for mum. And so she, they started having coffee together and then mum gets invited along to school events. And, you know, it is with, they're not, it's not a friendship, but it's definitely... Um, mum is part of a larger family. And I, I listened to, I interviewed, um, well, some of these interviews now are done in Victoria, but women who had done fostering, so, you know, from the 1970s. And sometimes that was voluntary, so, mm. so women mm. had needed some help, and it was mostly women, and they'd taken it. And they had this similar sort of attitude. 
that they were there to support the birth family while they were going through whatever they were going through and often it was about you know a mum being deserted and needing some time to, to get those things together. Um, and I really appreciate that and even historically, it's rare, but historically I remember the case of Bernard Smith who was a, a, you know, um, an academic, a, kind of a big deal academic, and his foster mum did the same thing, kept in contact with birth mum and encouraged that. Mm. And in the and when I see those stories, for me they're the best stories. That optim now it might not always be safe. It doesn't need, you need to take into account safety, obviously. But it was always safe in those situations. Um, and I thought that was the optimum. If we can have, you know, we have this idea about, um, you know, children is everybody's responsibility. So why don't we make it a more inclusive, less competitive? Um, I don't know why foster parents have to compete with birth parents over... And, we, and last night, Anthony talked a little bit about yes. that. Yes. So if you've got a chance to you know, revisit that video that we tried to play today on YouTube, you'll find that uh, some of the things that they say, though that group said about that very issue, yes. in fact, about foster parents being more connected to yes. uh, the birth parents and, and to, support to support them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and that means, and, and uh, that also means that the foster care family needs support as well. Yeah. Um, I do know, I, you know, I spoke to some fabulous people and I have no doubt that they are excellent foster carers who probably wouldn't want to have anything to do with the birth parents either. And part of that is the influence of stories they've heard mm. or what those what, even what the children have told them, the parents have done, and they're angry on behalf of the children. And so I get that. I get, I yeah, get, that's I get good that. Point. I yeah. get that as well. But I often those stories. That. But I think often those stories are distorted too. Maybe. I mean, we look at the three people we had here last night mm. or doing that video, and each one of them is fabulous. Mm. A fabulous person who, in my humble opinion, as a social worker, should have the opportunity to have their kids with them. Um, but the stories that are formulated by the department are old stories, so they're historical things mm. about these people that mm. um, aren't necessarily currently true. Mm. Um, and, you know, and therefore foster parents are, I think, lumbered with that historical version of who these people are as mm. well. Yeah, yeah, but I guess sometimes it's coming yeah. from the child about what mum and dad has done. That's true. And that's very hard for somebody to listen to and not be angry on behalf of that child because there's no doubt that some children suffer you know, horrific. Of course they do, lots of trauma. Now, before we finish though, I thought you might like to have an opportunity to talk about some of your blogging. My blogging? Your superheroes. Do you want to? I could do that, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, about that? Yes, yeah, so having been in foster care myself, I'm probably a little bit. Um, influenced by this. Now I know that a lot of advocates, well let me just backtrack, there are lots and lots of problems, structural problems with the system. So I know that we do end up with kids coming out of state care who are overrepresented in the mentally ill population, in the prison population, in the homeless population and I don't want to deny that. I know that that is what happens and in in, in my view, the state should be ashamed of itself for allowing that to happen. The state clearly must take responsibility, as it's expected birth parents to do, take responsibility for that appalling situation and change it. The trouble is, and I've done this myself, 
well-meaning advocates are saying, this is what happens, therefore things need to change. But that's the only story that ever gets told. And so we, people who've come out of state care, often have no higher expectations of us. We're seen as those who are likely to be in prison, mentally unwell, um, homeless, etc. And I did go through a period of homelessness at 18. Um, I've never been in prison, though. Certainly been a bit mentally unstuck at times. Um, so no, no comment from me. So I'm not denying any of that. Um, however, it's not the whole of me, mm. and it's not the whole of other people that I've learned about as well. But the thing was that I don't hear those stories told. And I can remember when I was a new academic at the University of Adelaide in 2012, when I first heard about Bernard Smith. Oh my God, there was another academic who'd been in state care. It was the most amazing thing for me. I didn't feel so alone and so isolated and so different in that case. So what I've been doing, and I'm very inspired by an Ethiopian-British poet, Lem Sisse, um, and he's been talking about his experience. He was in foster care and residential care. And he reckons all kids in out-of-home care are superheroes because of the skills they have to develop to, um, to survive mm. in their situations. Yep. And if you think about moving from place to place and adapting to new people, etc., etc. So, um, so I've got a blog now called Real Life Superheroes and I'm looking at people who've got some sort of background in out-of-home care, whether that's in stat statutory state care or whether that's been organised informally through friends and family. And I've, I started it on the 16th of July. I do a post every day. And I've got some fabulous people. Yeah. There. Can you just just as we finish off though, can you can you just give us a couple of examples of people that were that were in state care that 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 you're amazed at or surprised at or you really see as superheroes? Well, I think they're all superheroes. So mm. I have people like a friend of mine, Amanda Gargula, for example, who had a horrific time in foster care. Yeah. Who's who's not famous at all? She's written her story. She has publications. But she's not a celebrity or famous figure. But for me, she's still a real life superhero. Absolutely. So I have people like um, like Amanda, and then I'll have some big names as well, like Marilyn Monroe, who was in who was brutalised in foster care and died very young. She absolutely did have mental health issues, no doubt about that. Didn't receive the help that she that she needed. Um, so she's a very huge figure. There are people like um, Jacques. Uh, Rousseau, who's a, who's a philosopher, he was around in the 1700s and he was in informal foster care and, and kinship care when he was abandoned by his father. He uh, didn't go to university, but he studied in universities all over the real world. And if you pick up a book on democracy, you're, a recent book on democracy, you're going to have um, bits and pieces about Rousseau yeah, in absolutely. there as well. Yeah. So there's, there's a broad range too, aren't there? I mean, there are those people that who, are, who are famous, who are academics, yeah. who are intellectuals, who are, you know, people like Amanda and Sarah, and there's other people that we and know. there are activists. And yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah, so activists yeah. like Joanna Penglase, for example, who was doing a PhD, and...